Let us pray. Take, Lord, and receive all that we have and all that we are, for you have given it all to us. Give us only your love and your grace, for that is enough for us. And hold me up, God, that I might lift you up. Amen. Amen. Here now a reading from the book of Ecclesiastes. I said to myself, come now, I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But again, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly until I might see what was good for mortals to do under, under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and delights of the flesh and many concubines. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it, and again, all was vanity and a chasing after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So today is week two of our worship series. It's a new year. Now what? At the time of year when most of us are reflecting on the year past and leaning into or discerning what intentions or resolutions we might set for the coming year, we as a congregation are mining one of our lesser known books of the Bible, Ecclesiastes, for wisdom about the meaning and purpose of life. I mean, after all, isn't that what New Year's resolutions are essentially about? Generally, we resolve to engage in practices or in behaviors or thought patterns that we hope will improve our level of happiness and well-being and maybe deepen our sense of purpose and meaning. Well, the author of Ecclesiastes is highly skeptical of all the ways in which we typically pursue happiness in the ways we typically pursue life's meaning. Ecclesiastes in Hebrew is kohelet, which means teacher or preacher. It's someone who speaks in the public assembly. Our teacher, kohelet, circles around the same conclusion throughout his writing, and in fact brackets this particular section of scripture with all is vanity, 
all is vanity. And then he punctuates, seemingly exclaiming, and a chasing after wind. Remember the word translated as vanity, we said, is hebel in Hebrew, and it literally translates as breath or vapor. And it's best understood as fleeting or beyond our grasp. Well, last week, Kohelet proclaimed, life isn't fair. He pointed out that no matter who you are, what you do, how you've behaved, what you've done, what you have, we all come to the same end, death. But we determined that rather than dwell on the future, rather than compare ourselves or our fate with another's, rather than worry about death, we are to live fully and joyfully in the present moment, where, we determined, is the most likely place we will encounter God, receiving and sharing the many gifts given to us by the Eternal One, the One who created us and created all of life and called it good. Well, today, Kohelet wonders about the pursuit of pleasure. Remember, our teacher purports to be King Solomon, although as we discussed again last week, he almost certainly is not. Still, the author writes from the perspective of someone who has seen and done and knows it all. King Solomon, according to the scripture, was the consummate sage and gatherer of wisdom and wealth. So, given Kohelet's purported life experience, including, as today's reading outlines, his exhaustive pursuit of pleasure, which includes seeking pleasure in laughter and merrymaking and wine, apparently he was quite the partier, work and accomplishments, possessions, of which he had many, herds, flocks, silver, gold. He even owned other human beings. He had the opportunity and the privilege to enjoy the best possible entertainment, inviting the most gifted singers to his court, engaged in all the fleshly delights, even had concubines. Still, given all his attempts to find happiness and life's purpose in pleasure, he again comes to the conclusion that none of it, in and of itself, has meaning certainly not enduring. One commentator interprets Kohelet in this way, saying, the, the reward of uninhibited hedonism is unbounded disillusionment. I'll repeat that. The reward of uninhibited hedonism is unbounded disillusionment. It turns out that science supports the conclusion. Pediatric endocrinologist Robert Lustig distinguishes the difference between pleasure and happiness in this way. Pleasure, says Dr. Lustig, is short-lived, visceral, can be experienced alone, and can be caused by substances or behaviors. Happiness, on the other hand, is long-lived, ethereal, usually social, and cannot be had as a result of substances or behaviors. The problem, Lustig goes on to point out, is that the pursuit of pleasure as an end in and of itself 
can diminish our ability to experience happiness. Here's why. There are two neurotransmitters that trigger feelings of pleasure and happiness, respectively. They are dopamine and serotonin. Now, dopamine is responsible for allowing us to feel pleasure, satisfaction, and motivation. And when you feel good that you've achieved something or pleasure from substances or behaviors, it's because you have a surge of dopamine in your brain. Now, serotonin is a neurotransmitter that mediates satisfaction, happiness, and optimism. Serotonin levels are reduced in people who are experiencing depression, which is why most modern antidepressants, antidepressant drugs, which are known as serotonin reuptake inhibitors, act by increasing the amounts of serotonin that are available to brain cells. Y'all didn't know you were going to get a science lesson today, did you? <laughs> yes. I hope y'all find this as fascinating as I did. In our pursuit of pleasure, we stimulate the production of dopamine, which is called an excitatory neurotransmitter, which means it stimulates neurons in the pleasure zone of your brain. However, when those neurons are overstimulated, it can cause them to die. And when one neurotransmitter dies or one cell dies, the one beside it goes into defensive mode and scales back or down-regulates itself so that it does not respond as quickly or strongly to dopamine the next time so that it won't die. So what does this mean for us? Dr. Lustig says you get a rush, the receptors go down, and then the next time, because there are fewer receptors, you need a bigger hit to get the same rush. This is what causes the uh, addictive cycle that sometimes happens. Now, serotonin, which stimulates feelings of happiness, satisfaction, and optimism, on the other hand, does not behave the same way dopamine does because it is not an excitatory neurotransmitter. Rather, it is an inhibitor. It doesn't cause the next nerve to fire, says Lustig. It causes the next neuron to stay silent. As a result, you can't overdose on happiness. However, there is one thing that can downregulate serotonin, and that is dopamine. So, the more pleasure you seek, the more unhappy you get. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, diagnoses the problem a little bit differently, but comes to essentially the same conclusion as Kohelet and science. The pursuit of pleasure for pleasure's sake at the expense of all else will never make us truly happy. Lewis discusses what he refers to as disordered loves. Now by this, he means that when we prioritize love of anything, any object, any experience, any person or relationship, when we prioritize any love above our love for God, there is disorder and happiness will elude us. He says this of Jesus, 
Jesus says nothing about guarding against earthly loves for fear that we might be hurt. He does say something that cracks like a whip about trampling them, that is our earthly loves, all underfoot the moment they hold us back from following him, that is Jesus. And then C.S. Lewis goes on to quote Jesus from Luke's gospel when Jesus says, and I know y'all have heard this, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. I don't know about y'all, but I have read that scripture and scratched my head many times. I mean, what does it mean for the embodiment of love itself, Jesus Christ, to be calling us to hate? How can that be true? C.S. Lewis says, I think our Lord, in the sense here, intends hate much like it is evoked when Jesus says to St. Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. What he means by hate is to reject or to set one's face against or to make no concession to. And then he points out that Jesus also says at another point in the Gospels, any person, or any person who tries to serve two masters will love the one master and hate the other. Again, evoking that notion of rejecting one while privileging the other. It's not simply about mere feelings or aversion or liking one and disliking another. It's about consciously rejecting rejecting or resisting or reprioritizing our loves so that we privilege the greatest love. Our teacher, Kohelet, goes on to proclaim, similarly to last week, later, after what we just read, in chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This, too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? My spiritual director often asks me this question. Are you seeking consolation or are you seeking the giver of consolation? We could easily ask ourselves, are we seeking pleasure or are we seeking the giver of all pleasure? Y'all, pleasure in and of itself isn't bad. We established last week that God created all things, all of creation, including humanity, and called it good and intends for us to enjoy and take pleasure in creation. But the pursuit of pleasure above all else, especially when it compromises our relationship with God, our greatest love, it often backfires. So I wonder, in 2022, might we resolve to check ourselves using this question as our plumb line? maybe even as a prayer, a way of discerning along with the Holy Spirit. Do I seek pleasure 
in and of itself, which is vanity? Or do I seek the giver of all pleasure? May we all, in 2022, pursue the giver of all pleasure, our amazing creator and our greatest love, God Almighty. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.